1: They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government.
2: Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out Podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome.
3: Now return to the standard temple legend as given by Hecathorn and Steiner. Hiram stands in the presence of Cain, there to receive a prophecy. He heard the voice of him who was the offspring of Tubal Cain and his sister Naaman A son shall be born unto thee, whom thou shalt indeed not see, but whose numerous descendants shall perpetuate thy race, which, superior to that of Adam, shall acquire the empire of the world. For many centuries they shall consecrate their courage and genius to the service of the ever ungrateful race of Adam. But at last the best shall become the strongest and restore on the earth the worship of fire. Thy sons, invincible in thy name, shall destroy the power of kings, the ministers of the Adonized tyranny. Go, my son, the genie of fire are with thee. Now, as we read earlier, King Nimrod the Mason began the Tower of Babel, which was also the first major Masonic endeavor. As with Cain, Jehovah did not look with favor upon the tower and subsequently destroyed it. In a symbolic display of the prophecy expressed in the temple legend, the European Union released a poster with unmistakable imagery showing masons or square men rebuilding the Tower of Babel, symbolizing the EU. To drive this point home, The Parliament building of the EU has also been constructed in a clear imitation of the Tower of Babel. Aside from the implications of centralized government and the re-establishment of Babylon, this symbolizes united rebellion against the will of Jehovah. Others refer to themselves as goats, while mocking outsiders as sheep. This is highly symbolic, with a correspondence most would agree upon. In Symbolism of the Three Degrees, We read, The lamb, as stated in our monitors, has in all ages been deemed an emblem of innocence. It is a familiar saying, and has been for ages, that the lamb shall be separated from the goats. The evil symbolism of the goat is as old as the benignant symbolism of the lamb. In the Bible, sheep and goats are used to denote the two bloodlines, or spiritual types. It says, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from the other, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. While this prospect might seem unpleasant to some, perhaps, to a son of fire, one man's heaven is another man's hell.
2: Hey, hey, hey. Guess who's back? It's the odd man. Thank you for joining another Oddcast. And this week... I'm going to do my third installment on Freemasonry, and it may be the final one. Who knows? But I've just done so much research in this field, and I still think it's very interesting because I keep coming across things that I didn't know. They don't call them the mystery schools for nothing. So thank you once again for taking the time to listen, and I hope, as always, you get something out of this. I'm not going to beat around the bush and waste a bunch of time because I know I'll get caught up in talking about some current events, about the dumb elections or something like that. So let's get right to it and let's start peeling back the onion and kind of taking this apart and deconstructing it. Shall we? Let's do it. So you've probably heard me and others talk about how secret societies and in particular Freemasonry, they can communicate Without others knowing it, they have secret ways of communicating, whether that be through signs and symbols, hand movements, hand signals. I think they call them call signs. Also, though, there are numerous meanings to a lot of the words that they use. And some of the words are just everyday words that we would use that have different meanings to them. Some words have multiple meanings. And we see that in the regular world sometimes, but it's especially prevalent in Freemasonry. And so, I was reading in a book that I have talked about in this Freemasonry series before. It is by C.W. Leadbeater. It's called Freemasonry and its Ancient Mystic Rites. And there's a section in there, he talks about the mystery language. And he says, Besides the teaching upon the life after death, which was elaborated by countless stories of imaginary individuals showing the results in the astral plane after death of certain courses of action during life, a fine course of education was also given to the initiates of the first degree, embracing what Masons termed the seven liberal arts, and sciences, grammar, logic, rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy— By grammar, the Egyptians meant the sacred hieroglyphic writing of the priests, which was taught to all initiates of the mysteries, but it also signified a kind of secret language, a way of speaking peculiar to the priesthood. In the secret language of the mysteries, it was not so much that the different words were used as that the familiar words had different meanings. Those who have studied the translations of the Egyptian texts will have noticed how widely these vary in the versions of the different scholars. I have sometimes wondered whether this is in any way due to that system of double meanings. In ancient Egypt, we were able to talk about the secrets of the inner life before crowds of people without letting them know what we meant. And we had quite a large vocabulary of such significant words so that an entire conversation could be conducted seemingly about ordinary, everyday affairs, but in reality upon the secrets of the mysteries. Much instruction was given in this way. A lecture or an address might be delivered publicly by one of the priests, bearing two entirely distinct meanings, the one ethical and intended for helping the people of who were not initiated, and the other esoteric, for the students of the mysteries. The legend that masonry possesses a universal language known only to the brethren may be an echo of tradition about this ancient and secret tongue. This secret tongue of the initiates was also used in inscriptions and in the hieroglyphic wall paintings and papyri. Many of these inscriptions, telling of the victories of some great pharaoh, could be read in a hidden sense, and they then convened spiritual instruction to those who had learnt the real meaning. This is certainly true of the Book of the Dead, which when translated into English by modern scholars, seems often unintelligible and even grotesque. Yet, the interpretation of it taught in the mysteries, those same texts were full of inner illumination and gave much information about the realities of life and death. It is perhaps necessary to repeat that in all this there was no desire on the part of the priests to mislead people, Their idea was simply to give instruction graded to suit the needs of the hearer and to guard important secrets from those who were not prepared to receive them. It was for the same reason that the interior arrangements of the Great Pyramid were confused. Some of the passages were not used at all in the scheme of the initiation, the real passage having been obtainable in quite another way. This policy was dictated by wisdom, Would it not be well if in the present day we could see and devise some means by which new discoveries in science, which are now used for injury and destruction, could be preserved solely for the use of people who would be certain to employ them for the public good? And from that I would just say that, you know, I've talked about before how a lot of Freemasonry teachings are good, yet they do teach men how to communicate in secret, how to do things in a hidden way. And if you are an evil person, this does allow you to use these great mysteries that you learn for bad, evil purposes. Now, I go back to him talking about giving speeches in Egypt that sounded like a normal speech, but they were actually twofold. One was, straightforward and it was the exoteric and the other was the esoteric that was meant for the initiates to understand. And it just makes me wonder if we have seen those type of things in modern politics and sports, art, music. I'm sure we have and I think that we should start paying attention to that from now on. I'll go to Morals and Dogma for a little bit more on this, by Albert Pike, of course. He says, The people will always mock at things easy to be misunderstood. It must needs have impostors. A spirit, he said, that loves wisdom and contemplates the truth close at hand is forced to disguise it, to induce the multitudes to accept it. Fictions are necessary to the people, and the truth becomes deadly to those who are not strong enough to contemplate it in all its brilliance. If the sacerdotal laws allowed to the reservation of judgments and the allegory of words, I would accept the proposed dignity on condition that I might be a philosopher at home and abroad a narrator of apologues and parables. In fact, what can there be in common between the vile multitude and sublime wisdom? The truth must be kept in secret, and the masses need a teaching proportion to their imperfect reason. Moral disorders produce physical ugliness, and in some sort realize those frightful faces which tradition assigns to demons. A couple pages onward, he says, Masonry, like all the religions, all the mysteries, hermeticism, and alchemy, conceals its secrets from all except the adepts and sages, or the elect, and uses the false explanations and misinterpretations of its symbols to mislead those who deserve only to be misled to conceal the truth which it calls light from them and to draw them away from it. Truth is not for those who are unworthy or unable to receive it or would pervert it. So God himself incapacitates many men by color blindness to distinguish colors and leads the masses away from the highest truth, giving them the power to obtain only so much of it as it is profitable to them to know. Every age has had a religion suited to its capacities. So on to a different subject. I was looking through the history of Freemasonry by Albert Mackey, which I've talked about in the other two episodes on Freemasonry. And Mackey being the premier historian for Freemasonry, uh, he has some interesting stuff to say. He's talking about the temple legend. So it's in that section there. And he says, Before concluding this subject, it will be necessary to refer to the name of the builder chief of the temple, and whose name has undergone that corruption in all the manuscripts to which all proper names have been subjected in those documents. Of course, it is known from the testimony of scripture that the real name and title of this person, as used in reference to King Solomon and himself, was Hiram Abiff. This Hebrew appellative is found for the first time in Masonic documents in Anderson's Constitutions and in the Kraus M.S., both being of the date of the early part of the 18th century. Previous to that period, we find him variously called in all the old manuscripts from the Dowland in 1550 to the Alnwick in 1701, Amon, A-M-A-N, Amon, A-M-O-N, a-non, Anon A Y N O N Anon A-N-O-N, and A-non, or A-Juan, A-J-U-O-N. Now, of what word are these a corruption? The Cook M.S. does not give any name, but only says that the king's son of Tyre was Solomon's master mason. All other succeeding manuscripts, without exception, admit this relation. Thus the Dowland, in which it is followed by all others, say that King Hiram had a son that was called Anon, and that he was a master of geometry and was a chief master of all of Solomon's masons. The idea thus established that this man was of royal dignity, the son of a king, and that he was also a ruler of the craft. Now, I thought that was pretty interesting because, of course, QAnon, maybe it just stands for anonymous, right? But that is pretty interesting that he would be such an important figure in Freemasonry, which just adds to the mystery of QAnon and if there really is a QAnon and who is behind it. So, I don't know. I ran across it. I had to share it with you guys. And many of you have probably seen me. I posted that picture from that page on my Instagram. But if you haven't seen it, you can go check it out on there. I'm beginning to see more and more there being a New Age kind of slant, kind of vibe to QAnon. I know there's a couple books written about it that has that slant. I'm seeing videos on YouTube about it. Uh, It kind of falls in line with this Great White Brotherhood and these kind of the theosophy type of deal where there's these adepts, these great sages, and I've even seen a couple videos that kind of lean towards, or not kind of lean towards, but basically say that Trump is one of those adepts, but he's a living adept come here to help us. And that kind of jives with some of the Hindu legends. You know, they think that there's these 10 adepts, or I forget exactly what they call them. Uh, And that they will be reincarnated and they come back to help people when they have fallen, like when the world has fallen in chaos. Uh, And I think that they believe that nine of them have already happened and only one is left, if I'm not mistaken. I've read that in... uh, Uh, Manly P. Hall's book on reincarnation. It's been a long time, but uh, I just thought that I would uh, share that with you guys because it's pretty interesting and kind of wild at the same time. Now, this is just something I wanted to add into this episode, and it's kind of one of those things that would be much better if it was visual, but I think that I can quickly just describe it, and uh, maybe you guys will start recognizing it when you see it. You talk about the five points of fellowship in Freemasonry and how they greet one another, showing the five points of fellowship. Well, you'll see politicians, especially world leaders from different countries, greeting one another with a peculiar type of hug. And some of you might have noticed, hey, that hug was a little bit different than the way normal people would hug, you know, but um, this is the way they do it. It is foot to foot, knee to knee, breast to breast, hand to back and mouth to ear. That is how they do it. I repeat that. They go foot to foot, knee to knee, breast to breast, hand to back and mouth to ear. So to expound on that a little bit, I'm going to read from John J. Robeson's Born in Blood, where he explains the five points of fellowship a little better. Stepping back, the worshipful master explains that the five points of fellowship are foot-to-foot to to indicate that a master mason will go out of his way on foot, if necessary, to assist a worthy brother. Knee-to-knee, as a reminder that in his prayers to the Almighty, the master mason remembers his brother's welfare as well as his own. Breast to breast, as a pledge that each master mason will keep in his own breast any secrets of a brother when given to him as such. Murder and treason excepted. Hand to back, because a master mason will always be ready to reach out his hand to support a brother and to defend his character and reputation behind his back as well as his face and mouth to ear because a master mason will always endeavor to caution and to give good advice to an erring brother in the most friendly manner, pointing out his faults and giving him timely counsel so that he may ward off approaching danger. So my advice is next time you see a couple of world leaders or very important political figures hugging, just pay attention to that and see if you think that they are giving one another the Five Points of Fellowship signs, you know that they say the Mason is always traveling. He's a traveling man, right? Like the um, episode I did called Are You a Traveling Man? And they say that the Mason is always traveling from the west towards the east. Now, why is that? That's because he's traveling towards the light and the sun rises in the east. So, it is said that he is on a journey and is always traveling towards the light. Just a little thing I thought I'd throw in there if you don't know about that. You know, I've heard it said by Masons that the Great Pyramid without the capstone symbolizes us it symbolizes the man and his body is a temple and that not having the capstone means that the temple is unfinished and we are an unfinished temple and i've heard them also say that solomon's temple also symbolizes the great pyramid and the unfinished temple of solomon it's really interesting because One thing I've learned from doing all of these different uh, shows that have Freemasonry as the subject is that there are so many different legends. And it's taught me that you can make up so many different things to symbolize other things or to go along with them. Pretty much the sky is the limit as far as making up allegories and saying, well, this means this, and this means that. It really boils down to how talented you are, how, how clever you are, and really your imagination. And I'm reminded of people like Jordan Maxwell, who I've always said is right about a lot of things, but also he takes a lot of liberties with words and etymologies. And just because a certain word may sound similar, even though they are different languages, doesn't necessarily mean they have the same roots or the same root meanings. That's not the way etymology works. And I think that a more current uh, a more current sample of that would be Bishop Larry Gators, whom I find fascinating. But the more I get to listening to this guy, I'm a bit more cautious of him because I think he is... Just drawing conclusions and, and, and drawing uh, lines when there isn't anything. Not always, of course, but I think he's doing that. So I'm reading this book by W.L. Wilmshurst called The Meaning of Masonry. Apparently it's a pretty important book. He says in this one little section, he's talking about the great architect, and he says his plan of rebuilding the temple of fallen humanity and of initiating, advancing other men to a participation in the same great work. This evolution, the evolution of man into superman, was always the purpose of the ancient mysteries, and the real purpose of modern masonry is not social and charitable purposes to which so much attention is paid, but the expediting of the spiritual evolution of those who aspire to perfect to perfect their own nature and transform it into a more godlike quality. Also in this book, he talks quite a bit about building the perfect cube. And that means when you first become a Mason, you're an entered apprentice. You're described as a rough ashlar stone, a piece of rough stone. And over time, as you learn more, you build more knowledge, then you become a cube, a smooth stone, or some say the philosopher's stone. Some say you reach apotheosis and become your own god once you become a master mason. So the cube, the perfect cube, as W.L. Wilmshurst describes it, is what you become. And I can't help but think of the black cube of Saturn. Then you also have to think about, or at least I do, because I just did a podcast about them, BlackRock, the most powerful investment banking firm in the world right now. Then there's subsidiary, Blackstone. And I think about Black Cube, the institution that consists of former Mossad guys and the things that they might be doing. So I would think that if you become a cube, a smooth, perfected cube, a perfectibilist, uh, and then you have the name Black in front of it, that would almost have to mean that you were working in the opposite of light. Now, Masons are supposed to be light workers, brothers of light, brothers of fire, of patah, So, does that mean that this is dark magic? Does that mean that they're working with dark magic? I don't know. You have to be the judge. You look into it. I think it's very mysterious and uh, worth looking into and worth thinking about. But I just want to throw that part out there while we're talking about this perfect cube. I'll read a piece here from the book where he talks about that perfect cube. He says, Now, as these facts are the basis upon which these lectures proceed, let me at the outset make my first point by stating that, as the progress in the craft of every brother admitted into his ranks is by gradual successive stages, in like manner the understanding of the Masonic system and doctrine is also a matter of gradual development. Stated in the simplest terms possible, The theory of Masonic progress is that every member admitted to the order enters in a state of darkness and ignorance as to what the Masons teach and that later on he is supposed to be brought to light and knowledge. Putting it together in our terms, he enters the craft symbolically as a rough ashlar, and it is his business so to develop both his character and his understanding So that ultimately, in virtue of what he has learned and practiced, he may be as an unfinished and perfect cube. He mentions that several times. And uh, actually, the Illuminati watcher, Isaac Weishaupt, he had posted some pictures of a cube. I think it was in, if I remember correctly, it was in uh, St. Louis. He'd been there some time back, and he had taken pictures of these cubes all over the city. And I had sent him a message that this book actually has quite a bit about The Perfect Cube, and he actually gave me a shout-out on his last uh, podcast, and he does a great job. I think he's one of the best, so I really appreciated him doing that, because he certainly didn't have to. And for a little bit more on The Cube, you can't have a show on Freemasonry without mentioning Albert Pike, right? Well, from Morals and Dogma, he says this about The Cube... The rough ashlar is the people, as a mass, rude and unorganized. The perfect ashlar, or cubicle stone, symbol of perfection, is the state, the rulers deriving their powers from the consent of the governed, the constitution and the laws speaking the will of the people, the government, harmonious, symmetrical, efficient, its powers properly distributed and duly adjusted in equilibrium. Well, that surely doesn't sound anything like our government. He goes on to say if we delineate a cube on a plane surface, we have visible three faces and nine external lines drawn between seven points. The complete cube has three more faces making six, three more lines making twelve, and one more point making eight as the number 12 includes the sacred numbers 3, 5, 7, and 3 times 3, or 9, and is produced by adding the sacred numbers 3 to 9, while its own two figures, 1, 2, the unit or monad, or duad, added together make the same sacred number 3. It was called the perfect number, and the cube became the symbol of perfection, produced by force acting by rule, hammered in accordance with lines measured by the gauge out of the rough ashlar, it is an appropriate symbol of the force of the people, expressed as the constitution and the law of the state, and of the state itself, three visible faces represent the three departments, the executive, which executes the laws, the legislative, which makes the laws, the judiciary, which interprets the laws and applies and enforces them between man and man, between the state and citizens. The three invisible faces are liberty, equality, and fraternity, the threefold soul of the state, its vitality, spirit, and intellect. Now, Pike actually mentions the cube quite a few times in different passages in Morals and Dogma, But I thought I would check out Eliphas Levi, because that is Pike's hero. You know, he plagiarized him, as we learned in one of our other episodes on Freemasonry. So in the history of magic... Now, I didn't find cube, but I did find cubic. And I found stone quite a few times. But here is the most significant passages I could find. Okay, for the rest... Were those who accused Christ of setting up a spurious cornerstone acquainted themselves with the true one? Mark. Had not the Jews in the days of the Pharisees lost the science of that which is at once the cornerstone, the cubic stone, the philosophical stone? In a word, the fundamental stone of the Cabalistic temple, square at the base and triangular above, like the pyramids. By impeaching Jesus... As an innovator, did they not proclaim that they themselves had forgotten antiquity? Was not that light which Abraham saw and rejoiced extinguished for the unfaithful children of Moses? And was it not recovered by Jesus, who made it shine with a new splendor? To be quite certain on the subject, the gospel and the apocalypse of St. John must be compared with the mysterious doctrines of the Sefer Yetzirah and the Zohar, It will then be realized that Christianity, so far from being a heresy in Israel, was the true orthodox tradition of Jews, while it was the scribes and the Pharisees who were sectarians. Furthermore, Christian orthodoxy is proved by the consent of the world at large and by the suspension of the sovereign priesthood, together with the perpetual sacrifice in Israel, the two indisputable marks of a true religion, Judaism, a temple without a high priest and without a sacrifice, survives only as a dissident persuasion. Certain persons are still Jews, but the temple and the altar are Christian. Well, he describes the stone a little bit different. He basically describes a pyramid or a triangle shape, but I thought that was interesting. And there's some other parts in there where he mentions the philosopher's stone. There's one part where, towards the end, he's saying that Most people would not believe him, but the stone, if ever found, would heal all illnesses. Uh, It would just be this stone, this like magnificent, miraculous stone that would have all these different usages. So I thought I'd just throw that in there just because, hey, you know, all this stuff is connected in some way. Now to change it up a little bit. I was recently reading The Spirit of Masonry by Foster Bailey. And I'll remind everyone that Foster Bailey was Alice Bailey's husband. He was a Freemason. Bailey was a co-Mason, as far as we know. Uh, We're we're not 100% sure on that, but we do know that Blavatsky and Annie Beesant were co-Masons. Now, this book was published by Lucius Trust, which a long time ago was Lucifer Publishing, and they still run the Library for the United Nations. And a lot of people know the United Nations is a very new agey group. And so he mentions towards the end here, this is actually a pretty good book if you want to find out about Freemasonry. Um, He mentions towards the end some things that I thought were interesting. He's talking about Sirius which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Albert Pike says that the flaming or the blazing star represents Sirius, the dog star. He says, The spiritual ancient mysteries were brought to our Great White Lodge, known to non-Masons as the hierarchy from the Great White Lodge on Sirius. They veil the secret of man's origins and destiny and are symbolically expressed in the rituals of the Masonic degrees. And I'll also say, in reference to the last podcast on Q, that Bailey mentions the plan, the plan, in here quite often in regards to the the brotherhood of man, the new age. Um, he goes on to say, though, after he's talking about Sirius there, the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness held a hint for the Masonic craft in the days of operative masonry. The building of King Solomon's temple holds useful teachings for the speculative mason of today. The temple in the heavens, not yet built, points the way to the next great stage of spiritual masonry. He says this is worth pondering. Now a couple pages over, he says, Each star in the heavens is a solar system with a light-producing sun and revolving planets. Our solar system in which our Earth exists is one of them. There are millions of stars, but among them only the star Sirius has a direct link with the Earth and with humanity. Much was known to the ancients about Sirius, now largely lost but recoverable. Our modern exploration of outer space is helping us here. Our planet is affected by other planets in our solar system, which in turn is affected by other solar systems. We are learning that it is a scientific fact that the stars affect the human kingdom on Earth and therefore us. The interrelatedness of all objects in the universe is now recognized as is the interrelatedness of all nations on our little spaceship Earth. We all are one. Our planetary Logos cooperates with other planetary Logoi in our solar system, and our solar Logos cooperates with other solar Logoi, and especially with Sirius. Here, therefore, are a few facts about Sirius to stretch our minds and help us grow. According to Webster's Dictionary, Sirius, often called the dog star and the star in the east, is the brightest star in the heavens and is located in the constellation Canis Major. The solar system Sirius is both larger and older than our solar system and has a much greater influence in the cosmos. There is a direct magnetic link between Sirius and our solar system into Mercury, Mars, and Venus. Masonic tradition has it that the first three degrees of our Blue Lodge are equivalent to the first degree of Freemasonry on the star Sirius. Skipping a few lines, he says... Where did masonry originate? Because the star Sirius is older than Earth, masonry could have existed there long before our Earth masonry began. By implication, there is human life on Sirius, and research in outer space now indicates that the type of life we call human is not limited to this planet. Both religion and science are less dogmatic about this than of old. He says, Our solar system receives energy from three main sources, There are three great waves of energy which sweep through our solar system, and one of which comes from Sirius. In closing, he says, There are seven paths of progress open to the man who has learned all that human evolution on Earth can teach him. One is the path to Sirius. He arrives in the consciousness as a perfected human. It follows that there is, therefore, a type of life on Sirius which includes the essentials of human life on Earth, This includes Masonry, and he finds that great spiritual fraternity already there. Life on Sirius is therefore the destiny of the majority of humanity, who then, if they are Masons, continue as Masons. So there is Foster Bailey on Sirius. Well, what did General Pike say in Morals and Dogma about Sirius? Actually, quite a lot. Sirius is in there a whole bunch but I'll just mention a couple of things. He says, The ancient astronomers saw all the great symbols of masonry in the stars. Sirius still glitters in our lodges as the blazing star. He also says in another part where he's talking about the death of Osiris, When Isis found the body where it had floated ashore near Biblios, a shrub of Erica or Tamarisk near it had, by the virtue of the body, Shot up into a tree around it and protected it, and hence our sprig of acacia. Isis was also aided in her search by Anubis in the shape of a dog. He was Sirius, or the dog star, the friend and counselor of Osiris, and the inventor of language, grammar, astronomy, surveying, arithmetic, music, and medical science, the first maker of laws and he who taught the worship of the gods and the building of the temples. But you can go and check it out yourselves, because like I said, there's quite a bit about Sirius, and you've got a lot of reading to do if you want to check that out. So, take it a different direction here. I was looking in a book, gosh this must have been a couple of months ago, just uh, kind of browsing this ebook that I found on archive.org by an author named Kenneth grant and if you're not familiar with him he was an occultist uh, he was a Crowley follower uh, his mentor was Alistair Crowley he started his own version of a cult with a take on Crowley's OTO called the Typhonian order or the Typhonian Ordo Templi Orientis. He wrote a book called Aleister Crowley and the Hidden God. And here he says something peculiar that stuck with me, and I wanted to read it to you guys and let me know what you think about it. The connection between the OTO and Orthodox Freemasonry was described by Crowley as follows. So far as the OTO is at all concerned with Masonry, it is that the whole of the knowledge of the 33rd degree of the reduced rite is incorporated in the first seven degrees of the O.T.O., but the degrees superior to the seventh of the O.T.O. contain a vital magical secret. The Paris working, or the Opus lutitanium, describes a series of magical workings which Crowley undertook with the assistance of Of Freder Lampada Trotum, where it says in parentheses, the poet Victor Newberg. They use a homosexual formula which Crowley later incorporated into the Sovereign Sanctuary as part of the eleventh degree of the Lima, at which the whole of Masonry of any rite certainly hints, though it is nowhere openly disclosed. Now I'm going to read that one more time, and. Just want you to think about it and tell me what you think. They used a homosexual formula which Crowley later incorporated into the sovereign sanctuary as part of the 11th degree of thelema at which the whole of masonry of any rite certainly hints, though it is nowhere openly disclosed. You know, when I first got into looking into this stuff, I would see things here and there that said that the highest degree or the higher degrees you um, had to engage in sodomy. Of course, this has been absolutely denied by Masons uh, as you would think they would. And it may not be true, but I think this is peculiar written by Kenneth Grant, who is not an adversary or an enemy of Masonry whatsoever. He's, you know, he's a a occultist and, uh, You know, the Typhonian order was taken off of the OTO, which was taken off of masonry. So I don't see why he would have a reason to um, say that if it were not true. He goes on to say the OTO became the first officially Masonic body and the first greater order of antiquity to accept the law of Thelema. Crowley reorganized and remodeled the grades above the fourth degree. The first four degrees retain their traditionally Masonic character, although with modifications to obviate infringements of the rules and regulations of Orthodox Freemasonry. So anyway, yeah, that was pretty interesting, huh? Um, I'll just leave that there and, uh, you know, people can uh, decide for themselves what he meant. Now, in another section in this book... He talks about a Crowley paper when he speaks of masonry. He says, in a paper entitled The Elixir of Life in 1914, Crowley wrote, Although I was admitted to the 33rd and last degree of Freemasonry so long ago as 1900, it was not until the summer of 1912 that my suspicion was confirmed. I speak of my belief that behind the frivolities and convivialities of our greatest institution, lay in truth a secret and ineffable and miraculous potent to the control of the forces of nature, and not only to make men brethren, but to make them divine. But at a time I speak of, a man came to me, a man of those mysterious masters of esoteric Freemasonry, who are alike its eyes and its brains, and who exist in its midst unknown, often even to its acknowledged chiefs, This man had been watching my occult career for some years and deemed me now worthy to partake in the greater mysteries. With these he's proceeded to acquaint me and my life has since then been devoted principally to their study and practice. I say practice as to no mere intellectual attainment is at issue. On the contrary, it would be simple for me to communicate the knowledge of the principal secret in three words if I were not bound alike by my oath and by my natural good sense. It is the practical application of the secret that demands labor, intelligence, and something more. In my case, the two and a half years of research on these lines have not sufficed to make me perfect, only to make me ready to bet about three to one that in any given operation I shall succeed. This reference is to Freemasonry. The reference is to Theodore Roos, or frater Merlin, from whom Crowley took over the headship of the O.T.O. In the Manifesto of the Most Secret Order, of which my master is the head, it is written, in its bosom repose the great mysteries. Its brain has resolved all the problems of philosophy and life. It possesses the secret of the stone of the wise. We get back to the stone. The elixir of immortality and of the universal medicine. Moreover, it possesses a secret capable of realizing the world-old dream of the Brotherhood of Man. And there you have the New World Order once again, that great utopia. I don't mean to backtrack, but while I'm in this Kenneth Grant book here, looking around, I see Sirius, the mention of Sirius, which we just talked about, the star, the dog star, the blazing star in Freemasonry. He says here, order of the Eye of Set, the sun behind the sun, represented astronomically by the star of Isis, which is Sothis or Sirius. The constellation of which Sirius was the chief star was once named the Phoenix. This was the secret name of Baphomet as the supreme head of the O.T.O. He assumed the god form of this bird, an emblem of the Sothic year or cycle, because it had reached the meridian attained supremacy at the moment of the rising of Sirius or Set. I don't know, some of this stuff, you know, is uh, pretty complicated, and I just never enjoyed reading Crowley's stuff. Same with Blavatsky, but, uh, you know, sometimes it helps to read these things and kind of get their views and what they really thought instead of listening to what other people claim they thought. I might as well give a disclaimer, as I have with every episode about Freemasonry. You know, I'm not completely against Masonry. I think it teaches some good things. It teaches some great morals and values. Uh, I just wanted to really do some podcasts about information that I have tried to find but never did on other podcasts. And I thought, well, you know what? I want to put that out there. And maybe other people will get something out of it because there's so much symbolism. Because there's been so much time to add and add and add and take from all these different societies, be they secret or otherwise, and add to the degrees and add to the initiation process. So anyway, I hope that you do appreciate it. And now we'll move on to a little something else. And I may have mentioned this earlier, but if not, I just wanted to explain the symbolism of East and West in Freemasonry. And this is from Paul Foster Case in the book, The Letter G in Freemasonry. He says, Masons speak of themselves as traveling East in search of light. Their quest is thus indicated as being a search for origins and causes. For the West is the place of the sunset, the close of the day. Thus, it represents the end of a cycle of work or manifestation. And the end of such a cycle is the product of that cycle, the thing or form produced by the day's work. Hence, west is the direction symbolizing the things and forms produced by the grand architect's work in the universe. To travel from west to east Is therefore to pass from these forms and appearances to their hidden causes and from those causes back to the first cause, the master principle whose symbolic location is in the East. That kind of made me think that maybe that's another connection. You know, Manly P. Hall talks about how it's been known for thousands of years, at least several thousand years, by the ancient Egyptians, That there was a place in the West, North America, that one day would be a utopia for the great philosophers and this great white brotherhood. And since it's called the West, you know, North America is not the only West. It's not the only part of the West, of course, but it is part of the West. And they are traveling towards the West, towards the light. That's... Symbology, you know, it's an allegory of sorts, but it's true in, in certain aspects. Their whole life, they're traveling from east to west. That's why, if you suspect someone might be a, another Mason, you say, Are you a traveling man? Because they're said to travel their whole lives, because life's a journey, right? In the same book, He says, the Masonic meaning of the letter G never has been esoteric. The whole world has been told that the symbol owes its prominence to the fact that G is the initial of geometry. This makes it a symbolic summary of the entire Masonic system. The heart of Freemasonry is an esoteric doctrine founded on the science of geometry and expressed by means of geometrical figures and theorems. In the old Masonic constitutions, it is specifically stated that Masonry and geometry are one and the same. Neither is it any secret that the letter G is a symbol for the deity. It so happens that God is the English name of the grand architect of the universe. It does not follow that the fact that the G is the first letter of God is the only connection between the symbol and the deity. Several modern writers on Freemasonry seem to think so and have even gone so far as to say they feel Masonic symbolism has been hurt rather than helped by the adoption of the letter G. It is to be regretted, writes Mackey, that the letter G as a symbol was never admitted or was ever admitted into the Masonic system. The use of it as an initial would necessarily confine it to the English language and to modern times. It wants, therefore, as a symbol, the necessary characteristics of both universality and antiquity. It is a singular coincidence, according to McClinchahan, that the letters composing the English name of deity should be the initials of the Hebrew words wisdom, strength, and beauty, the three great pillars or metaphorical supports of masonry. They seem to present almost the only reason that can reconcile a Mason to the use of the letter G in its conspicuous suspension in the east of the Lodge in place of the Delta. The incident seems to be more than an accident. Hey, he goes on and on about that. But, hey, I thought that cleared that up a little bit. Of course, I'm sure we could find Masonic writers who would disagree, because that's one thing that we've learned. In these episodes, there is a lot of disagreement, a lot of disagreement amongst Masons and Masonic writers. And many of them still try to say that Masonry dates back even to the times of the Bible, or even before that, to the ancient Egyptians. And then there's many who say, no, it does not. It only started in 1717, officially. But maybe sometime before that, you know, a few years or decades before that, possibly, when it was still underground. So there's a big, big difference. A lot of people say that it goes back to the real, authentic masonry guilds who built so many of the beautiful temples and structures in medieval times and even before that. Uh, And then there are many who say absolutely not. There's no documented evidence to show that. And so John Robeson in Born in Blood, which is one of the best uh, pro-Masonry books I've ever read, uh, is very, very detailed, and he says there is absolutely no evidence to point that they go back any further than possibly the late 1600s. Sweet Mother, look at the time. It's been over an hour already. Wow. Well, I guess I'm going to sign off. I have enjoyed it. I had a good time. Did you have a good time, man? Uh, You know, I said that this might be the last show on Freemasonry, but I'm a liar. I know there'll be others as I study and read more. And uh, we'll find out some more stuff together and share with one another and talk about it and uh, discuss it amongst ourselves. But once again, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. Hope everything's cool. And uh, I don't know what I'm going to do for the next show. But, hey, it should be fun. I will come up with something good, I promise. I do know tomorrow night I am supposed to be on a podcast called Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. And it's a fellow by the name of Jack Allen that hosted it. He got a hold of me through Twitter. Don't know anything about the show. I haven't had a chance to listen. I might try to listen tonight or tomorrow before I do the show. But anyway, I'm doing this show tomorrow night. It'll be Wednesday, the 7th. I don't know when it will come out. But it looks like here you find his show on anchor.fm slash Jack Allen, A-L-L-E-N-1. And I'm sure he's probably on some other platforms as well. When I find out I will share with you so anyway look for that and until we meet again my friends cheers and blessings the glorified or all-seeing eye is known as the eye of Horus
1: one of the most important gods of the Egyptian mysteries other pagan icons include the Washington Monument an obelisk normally dedicated to the Egyptian Sun God Meanwhile, the idea for the Statue of Liberty was taken from the Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and combined with the imagery of the goddess of ancient Babylon, Queen Semiramis. But what do these esoteric elements tell us about the founding fathers of America? Who were they, and what was the light by which they saw the world and themselves in it? The majority of the people who were in the Founding Fathers were either deists or else they were freethinkers or they were Rosicrucians or they were masons or they were all of the above. Some find it interesting that while in office, President Reagan was made an honorary 33rd degree mason. Since then, America's presidents have all been members of secret orders, including skull and bonesman George W. Bush whose war on terror is said by some to have sparked the beginnings of World War III. Bush claimed it was the CIA who provided the information about weapons of mass destruction that ultimately led to the war in Iraq. As of the making of this documentary, that information has turned out to be false. An intelligence error? Maybe. Or perhaps the same powers that were working in the days of Benjamin
0: Franklin have never really ceased to function. And this is what people don't understand. As is, is our president talks about how we want to bring democracy to all these countries of the world, well, why doesn't he want to bring a republic to these countries? We were a republic. We were never a democracy. It is only the people from the mystery religions and the secret societies who are pushing this idea of world democracy or this combination of enlightened nations, enlightened democracies to rule the world. As incredible as it may seem, there are really people who believe that, they're working full-time to accomplish that goal. And until you understand that they are the primary force behind the wars of this last century and World War III, which we are entering into today, unless they understand that the whole idea to create this Re establishment of what they believe is lost Atlantis, this wonderful utopian society that they believe existed uh, eons ago. Anybody who studied the history of America knows we were not established as a democracy. Our founding fathers didn't believe in democracy, they wanted a republic, a government of law, not uh, the d- democracy, which is what the secret societies have been working for for well over 3,000 years.